the Gospel according to John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Let's... Pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you uh, that you, um, it kind of sounds audacious to say this, but you, you uh, we, we believe you speak to us uh, through these readings. We ask now that you will make yourself clear to us um, lots of reasons why we might misunderstand what it is you have to say. Lots of reasons uh, why we may not listen that well. Um, lots of reasons why we may not even really think that you're there or talking to us. Um, but in all of those things, Lord, uh, thank, thankfully, uh, you're powerful enough to overcome all of those things. So will you do that? Will you make yourself clear? And will you give us uh, that kind of real spiritual life that Jesus talks about in this reading. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, please keep the, um, the reading, the long reading from the Gospel of John on page 12 in front of you. Uh, we're going to spend at least two weeks on this reading. Um, and uh, the, just so that you remember, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. The context is Jesus is speaking to his disciples right um, just hours, a very few hours before Jesus is arrested and, and, uh, and uh, condemned and, and crucified. And so he's only talking about the really, really important things. And so we've been uh, listening and trying to learn what it is that Jesus has to teach us. Um, if you have been around church land for a little while, 
um, you will almost certainly notice a kind of uh, strange dynamic. Um, if, if you do not have a long story of, with Christianity, then this dynamic may be new to you, but you, you need to know about it. There are times where you will find Christians and sometimes whole churches that sort of emanate a remarkable spiritual life. Um, what I mean is, it, it, it may be kind of uh, hard to describe. It may be uh, hard to kind of put your finger on exactly what it is. But there are times where you meet Christians, um, and the more you get to know this person, inevitably, the more you end up thinking about Jesus. The more you get to know this person, the more vivid Jesus becomes for you. The more you get to know this person, the more compelling and plausible Jesus becomes for you. Do you know anybody like that? You ever met a person like that? Um, this past week I was in the UK. Uh, I was in London uh, visiting some old friends and, um, and catching up with uh, our church that we, that we were part of there. And um, this, this one particular friend that I got to spend an evening with, He's just a remarkable man. Uh, he is profoundly ill. I've actually just uh, talked about him to you before. He's profoundly ill. Uh, he has, his body has been deteriorating over, over many, many years. And even though he's still young, he can't care for himself anymore. And this man has suffered more than almost anybody I've ever met. And how, however, despite that... He's one of these people who just emanates with a remarkable spiritual reality, potency, vitality. So that anybody who knows this particular friend of mine, and, and you, uh, if you knew him and if you knew his friends, they would all say the same thing. In fact, they said the same thing to me this week. Everybody who knows him inevitably has to deal with Jesus Christ. Whether they're Christians, whether they're not Christians, everybody has to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ and his beauty just clearly uh, radiates from my friend. The more, the more you get to know my friend, even while he's sitting there in his hospital bed, the more you get to know him, the more you end up thinking about Jesus. It's remarkable. You'll meet people like that. Sometimes whole churches like that. However, the odd thing is that, that sometimes you'll meet people who call themselves Christians, who at least from a, a formal uh, exterior perspective look just like um, the people who experience real spiritual life, but sometimes you'll meet people, and, and yet again, it's hard to put your finger on it, and you don't want to judge and anything like that, but sometimes you'll meet people and you'll realize that though they claim to be Christians, uh, it, it's, it's not clear that their lives radiate with Jesus. They, they, if the first group is self-evidently spiritually alive, the second group it, um, looks alive, but, but, but somehow there, there's a kind of death. There's a kind of spiritual death there. They don't really seem like anybody. They seem just like everybody else. Now, why am I saying this? There's two reasons I'm saying this. First, I'm saying this just quite, quite simply. If you're a Christian then the greatest spiritual danger in your life is that we can end up religious but inwardly dead. And if you're not sure that you believe in this whole Christianity thing, then 
the only sort of Christianity that is worth joining is one that is fully and compellingly alive. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. And that's the first reason I bring it up. The second reason, however, has to do with our passage. Because Jesus, in the, our passage, he is opening up the, uh, the source of real spiritual life, the source of that inward vitality, the source of what he calls fruitfulness, fruitful Christianity. So let's look at it. Uh, this passage points out at least three things. First of all, fruitful Christianity is about receiving spiritual life from Jesus. Secondly, it's about enjoying spiritual life from Jesus. And thirdly, it's about sharing that life with others. Today, we're going to talk about the first two, receiving spiritual life and enjoying spiritual life. And next week, we'll talk about sharing it with others. First of all, let's get into it. Fruitful Christianity is about receiving spiritual life from Jesus. Take a look at verse 1. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, or the gardener, or the farmer. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Okay, now, focus in on that image. That image, Jesus is the vine, God is the gardener, and we are the branches. That image captures perfectly the fundamental dynamic of real spiritual life, um, the deepest desire and the highest goal of our church and hopefully of any church. And to show you how it works, let me ask you a question. I want you to think about your life for a second. And I want you to, this is going to be fun. You ready for fun? This is what you want to imagine. I'm going to give you a great picture. I want you to imagine that you are shockingly successful. Just shockingly successful in whatever. Just pick your favorite area of success. You can split between two of them if you want. Just imagine you're extraordinarily significant and successful. Now, in that happy imaginary world of your amazingness, in your best life now, who, who, don't, don't, don't read into that too much. In your happy, happy life, um, who does the most compelling work? Who got you there? Whose work got you to amazingness? Now, I don't actually mean that as a trick question, okay? When I think about my amazingness, imaginary, um, my assumption, usually, are you like this? My assumption is that it is my work that is most important and most determinative in that process. If it's going to be, I heard somebody say when I was a kid, it's up to me, which is terrible, but nonetheless. Now, can you identify with that? Isn't that what you were taught since you were just a little tiny kid? And the reason why most of us were taught this from the time we were very, very small children is that in a lot of respects, in a deep and real way, it's true in a lot of areas of life. However, this is the key. If you take that assumption and import it into your spiritual life as a Christian, it will kill your fruitfulness. Look back at Jesus' image, the gardener. Who does the hard work in the garden? It's not the branches. It's not me. It's not you. It's God. He's the gardener. 
The father is the laborer. Now pause. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about God? And in particular, do you ever think of God as a hard worker? Do you ever think of God as a diligent laborer in your life? I ask that question because the answer to that question makes all the difference in the world in your life with Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. Uh, most middle-class Westerners here in the United States and the, in the rest of the Western world, most of us tend to think that the thing that really, really matters in our life is what we do. Maybe more accurately, what I do. What you do in the singular. We imagine that the thing that really makes the difference is our work and our skill and our achievement and our drive. And we, we live that way in our professional lives, which of course makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. However, look back at the text. Can you see how badly that fits with Jesus' image here? The reason I say that is that if we think that we are the main workers, <clears throat> then what we're doing is we're taking Jesus' image and we're modifying it and distorting it because what we're doing is we're inserting ourselves into the garden where God belongs. God's the worker, not us in this image. If we rearrange that, what we're doing implicitly is we're firing God and we're hiring ourselves instead. Now the thing is, in the Bible, the Bible has a name for that. Do you know what the name for that is? Idolatry. Did you catch that in the first reading from Hosea? The first reading, Hosea is from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus. And in that reading, Israel, it says that Israel, the people of God, had started manufacturing false and fictitious gods. We call them idols. But the thing is, it's not just that they were manufacturing naughty little statues. Is that what you thought idolatry was? Naughty little statues? More deeply, I mean, they were manufacturing naughty little statues. But more deeply, they were worshiping their own work. Did you see that in verse 3? They were looking at their own work and they were saying, My God, the work of my hands. They weren't worshiping statues so much as they were worshiping their own work, effort, achievement, skill, drive, through worshiping these stupid little statues. Now consider your own heart. Because there are some of us here, friends, who have stalled in our Christian growth, in our spiritual life. We've stopped bearing fruit in part because deep down, we think that our spiritual life is really mainly about us. We imagine that we are the real workers and we get fatigued and tired and depressed and overburdened and it's tempting just to give up. I do this all the time. I have some experience. It is a mortal threat to my spiritual life. It makes me an idolater. And in the Bible, idolatry is always the root of every other type of sin. And this explains, by the way, 
why it is that you can have a conscientious, hardworking, diligent, religious person who is nevertheless inwardly, spiritually dead. A dead branch. All right. Go back to the garden. So, God is the hard worker. He's diligently working. My question is this. What is he working to accomplish? Uh, have, have you ever asked the question, what does God want for my life? What's God's will for my life, right? If you grew up in a Christian youth group, you were asked that question all the time, right? Okay, here, here we go. If God's at work in your life, if he's the diligent worker, then what is it that he's working to accomplish? What's the big product? The answer is verse 5. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, says Jesus, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so imagine a branch. Um, I don't know anything about farming or growing anything successfully, but I'm told um, that, that a branch only bears fruit this is not insightful. A, a, a branch only bears fruit, right, if it's connected to the vine, right? It has to cons uh, constantly uh, receive nutrients from the vine in order for it to flourish. So it's entirely dependent upon the vine. And therefore, the farmer, the gardener, whatever, does whatever it takes to make sure the branches stay robustly healthy by being continually nourished by the vine. And, and, and that's why I say that fruitfulness in the Christian life is always a receiving. It's always receiving spiritual life from Jesus. And it means that everything, if you're a Christian, everything that God is doing in your life right now ultimately aims at this one final thing. The one final thing that God is working toward in your life is that God wants to prune you so that you can receive more of Jesus. He wants to remove every obstacle from receiving more of Jesus. He wants to open you more to Jesus Christ. He wants to persuade you that you need Jesus. He wants uh, to uh, tend you, cultivate you, prune you like a gardener. And one of the things, one of the implications of this passage is that we should look at our lives and interpret what is going on in our life. And maybe you can't see exactly how this is happening, but you can say, Lord Jesus, I trust. Father in heaven, I trust that whatever else you may be doing in my life, confusing as it may be, nevertheless, I trust that your aim is to unite me more closely to Jesus Christ. So one way or the other, Father, get that done. That's what God wants to do in your life right now. So, first of all, fruitfulness in the Christian life is about receiving spiritual life from Jesus. But then secondly, fruitfulness is about enjoying that spiritual life. Once again, go back to the image of the vine and the branches. Because there's something very shocking about this image. Here's what's shocking. It's obvious, but if you think about it, it's shocking. The branches and the vine share the same life. Now, that's obvious if you think about it in terms of a plant. But if you apply that to us and Jesus Christ, it's shocking. 
Because what it means is that the Christian is supposed to enjoy the same spiritual life that Jesus enjoys. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, Jim, I have no idea what you're talking about, which is fantastic. I was hoping you would ask that question right now. What does it mean... What is this spiritual life? What's the nature of the spiritual life that Jesus imparts to us and that we are to enjoy? And how is it his? Wonderful. Let me say it. You articulate your questions so well sometimes, so thank you so much. Let me say it, and then I'll show it. Here it is. Spiritual life that we enjoy, receive from Jesus and enjoy, spiritual life is love experienced as joy and exhibited in obedience. Spiritual life is love experienced as joy and exhibited in obedience. Let me show you where I get that from. Verse 9. First of all, it is love. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. Okay, that's it. That's the heart of the spiritual life. And watch the dynamic. Pay Pay attention here. What happens is Jesus himself experiences love from the Father. Jesus abides in the Father's love and and enjoys the Father's love and lives in it and inhabits the Father's love so that Jesus is saturated with the Father's love in such a manner that he becomes the truly spiritual, uh, truly fruitful man. This explains why um, whenever people met Jesus throughout the Gospels, they met not just a man, they met the Father. Inevitably, they met Jesus and they ended up running right into God the Father. They couldn't get around it. Now, that's, that's Jesus' spiritual life and fruitfulness. But watch, because what he does is he repeats the same pattern in us. Here's what I mean. Jesus shares, the vine shares that love with us in such a manner that we abide in his love. We live in his love. We inhabit and enjoy Jesus's love. It's not a love that we generate. It's not a love that we crank out really hard and if we work really hard, we'll generate it. No, it's a love that we receive from him like a branch receives nutrients from a vine. And what happens is that the love of the Father comes through Jesus right into us. That explains why it is that when you meet my friend, if you could ever meet my friend, and oh, I wish you could, if you met my friend, you would walk away, you wouldn't think primarily about a man who's physically ill. Yes, he is. You would walk away thinking about Jesus. Just like when people met Jesus, they walked away thinking about God the Father. But now keep on going. The spiritual life that Jesus shares with us is love, but it's experienced as joy. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy, did you notice that, may be in you. There's the sharing. And that your joy may be full. Okay, what's Jesus' joy? Jesus' joy is the pleasure of being loved by his Father. And his joy becomes our joy when we abide in him. So that Christian joy is the pleasure of being loved by the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, friends, uh, stay with me here because this is very important. If you're suffering right now, then talk of joy can be a dangerous thing. Christian joy never means that we feel no pain. 
Christian joy doesn't even mean necessarily that we feel an emotional, sensed delight in every moment. Think about Jesus here. Jesus is talking about joy, but, but within this same conversation, this is just an excerpt of the conversation, but if you were to read the entire conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, a number of times he talks to the disciples about in this moment and at this dinner that his heart was overwhelmed with troubles, overwhelmed with distress. Why? Because he knew he was about ready to be killed. He knew Judas had betrayed him. He knew that he was about ready to be tortured. And there are there, there is few types of suffering that is more exquisite than the dread of knowing you are about ready to be tortured. So when Jesus talks about joy, he's not talking about cheap circumstantial happiness. He's not talking about a joy based upon his circumstance at all. He's, ba- he's talking about a joy that's based on relationship. You can be brokenhearted and have this joy be steep down underneath everything else that's going on. And the cross of Jesus Christ is your model. In fact, cross-shaped joy, joy that endures through suffering, is one of the most telling marks of the Christian life. Sometimes that joy will simply be hope. Hope. Lord Jesus, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I hope in you that if you walked through the cross, then somehow you can walk with me now in this. And so I hope in you. That can be a type of joy. So the spiritual life is love. It's experienced as joy, but that joy can, it'll feel different in different times of your walk with Christ. But then thirdly, it is exhibited and expressed in obedience. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, remember, just, I don't know, maybe two hours after this, uh, Jesus went willingly to the cross. Why did he do that? He didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? He did that because he loved his Father. Love animated his joy. Maybe he experienced it as hope in this moment. But it also motivated and drove his obedience. And that's crucial for you and me because that means that when we are branches united to the vine, that's how it works for us. Let me put it this way. Christian obedience, friends, is never merely regulatory compliance. That's a department at your bank. But that's not how the Christian life works. Christian obedience is more like sign language. You can tell me later if this illustration works. I'm not sure. Sign language, you have gestures that carry meaning. And Christian obedience is always like sign language. Gestures of meaning. Things we do that have a significance that are always saying in so many words, Jesus, I love you. Now, in all of this, friends, can you see how closely related the branches are to the vine? When you touch a healthy branch, you're also touching the vine because they share the same life. And that's God's plan for our church and your life. But even as I say this, even as I say that, we've got to pay attention to the danger of settling for being a dead branch. 
There are few things in the world more beautiful than a church that is fully alive and fruitful. And by the same token, there are few things more sinister than a church that claims Christ but is deeply dead on the inside. And God the Father takes it very seriously. Look at verse 6. Read this soberly, please. If anyone does not abide in me, says Jesus, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Friends, there's, if you think about that for about two seconds, you'll see just how sobering it is. And some of us who have been hurt by the church or who are de deeply afraid of the church's capacity to abuse, this is one of the reasons why you can trust God the Father, because he takes it seriously, and he takes it more seriously than we do. But if you look back at verse 6, can you see that it's actually not God that cuts off the dead branches? What happens is the dead branches choke themselves by holding Jesus at arm's length. That's how it happens. And it can happen very subtly. It can happen when we hear Jesus' words with our ears, but not with our hearts. It can happen when we uh, try to insert ourselves into God's place and we trust in our work and our efforts and our skill in such a manner that in an ironic way, our exertion, our moral exertion ends up numbing us to our need for Christ. That can be one way that we end up drying up. We can dry up when we persuade ourselves in the midst of difficulty. We persuade ourselves that God the Father is not a gardener. He's not cultivating us. He's not caring for us, but rather he's ignoring us. Or maybe we persuade ourselves that he's not there at all. It can happen in all kinds of different ways, but it always, the heart of deadening Christianity is always a slow distancing ourselves from Jesus Christ. And so... Emmanuel, Jesus wants to increase our desire for fruitfulness. Jesus wants us to be a church that pulsates with spiritual life. Jesus wants us to be a church where you can't help but meet Jesus here. Don't you want to be that way? We'll continue talking about this next week, but here's what I want to ask you. Do you desire greater fruitfulness? Do you want more of Jesus? And if you're not sure, if you believe all this, let me say something that could sound very audacious. But that's part of my job. God is a gardener who is cultivating your life and wants to graft you on to the living mind. Will you consent to that work? And if you're a Christian here, are you abiding in Christ more? Or do you look at your heart and you realize you're beginning to get dry and brittle? And if you look at yourself and you are afraid that you're about ready to break off, then go back to Jesus. Because remember just two hours later, Jesus himself went out from this place and he was put up, up on a cross. He was, he was put up on dry wood. He was put up on a broken branch so to speak. And in that moment, he became a broken branch. He experienced verse 6. He was cut off so that we could be grafted back on. And that means that the vine is ready for you to return to him. 
The vine is ready for you to be grafted back on and for you to receive all your spiritual nutrients, not from your efforts, but from his good work in you. Seek it, desire it, request it. And we'll pick up how to share that with others next week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.